0: Welcome back to Cloud and Fire. I'm your host, Jamie Crumley. This is season one, episode eight. It is our finale episode of this season. And it's called Running Toward New Life. We have walked through a long, complex, and challenging Lenten season. And now we find ourselves at the beginning of a new season, the season of Easter, the season in which we celebrate new life, the season in which we celebrate the reality that we serve a risen Lord. Christ is not in the tomb. Christ has conquered sin, death, and the grave. Christ has risen and all praise is to God. And yet, even as we enter this Easter season, we are surrounded by sorrow and by tragedy in much the same way that Jesus' disciples were on that very first Easter. And so what does it look like for us to bring our pain and our grief with us even as we run toward new life, even as we run toward hope? These are the questions that we will explore on this episode. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation for today. Our reflection for today comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, and I will read verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, sir, you have taken him away. Tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Listeners, our guest today is Miriam Samuelson-Roberts. Miriam is the senior pastor at Christ Church Lutheran, which is in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She lives in Minneapolis with her husband, Dan, and they have two lovely children, Esther and Elijah. Thank you so much, Miriam, for joining us here today.
1: Thank you. I'm so, so grateful to be here. Thanks, Jeannie.
0: So, Miriam, to get started, we just heard this kind of
1: familiar passage.
0: I think most people who have been in church before might have heard this passage on a previous Easter Sunday, but it resonates in new ways every time mm-hmm. we hear it. Mm-hmm. So as you hear that passage today, what comes to mind for you when you hear it?
1: Yeah, yeah. As I was just listening to this and and reading it over a little bit, I will say the... the um, line that struck me this time was, or maybe the image that struck me this time, is the image of Mary weeping. And, um, you know, in the passage you just read that Mary wept, Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? Uh, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? I mean, this this term weeping gets repeated over and over again. Um and I don't know, maybe it's just cause we're this many months into pandemic and I'm, <laughs> I'm big in my feelings right now. And maybe it's because I'm uh, parenting a toddler as well. And, and she's big in her feelings, but, um, this, this notion of like feeling your feelings all the way through, uh, and getting to the other side of them. And I've always kind of listened to this passage and heard Jesus's question afterward, woman, why are you weeping is a little bit accusatory. Like what, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time crying? But as I read it this time, I actually, I heard it as such a compassionate, like, tell me about your feelings, you know, tell me how you're doing. Why are you, why are you weeping? Um, so that, that's what struck me at the heart of it, kind of this time listening. Um, I don't know how, <laughs> how much you want to hear about uh, like child development and what I'm reading about parenting toddlers right now, but I, as I read, you know, toddlers have big feelings, our daughter's almost three. And as I read more and more about um, toddlers and their feelings, what I'm learning is um, at least the sort of like common, common parenting advice right now is not to tell kids to stop crying and not, not even to tell them it's okay, but to say, wow, I understand that that was really upsetting that your brother took your toy or whatever. Um, let me sit with you so that you can feel safe feeling this big feeling. Um, and honestly, I just feel like toddlers kind of just say what we all are thinking, but they (laughs) are better at saying it out loud, you know, um, and, and learning that parenting advice has been really, really good for me too, in this time of heightened emotion, um, and, and unknown it's, it's been a comforting message to me to, hear myself say, I'm here, you're safe, and you can feel your big feelings and get to the other side of them, instead of, why are you feeling this? Uh, That's absurd. You know, all of those kind of inner voices that we have um, when things are kind of chaotic.
0: You know, Miriam, I love that response, and I always enjoy talking to you, because I feel like you say something that I did not expect you to say. One thing that's been going on in our world right now, and that's always going on, right, is that not all children have an equal opportunity to just enjoy their childhood. And that has to do with race. Mm-hmm. That has to do with socioeconomic class. That has to do with culture, religion, where people grow up, how people grow up, whether they have the kinds of parents who are able to sit with them, right? And, and different parents mm-hmm. have a different level of ability to be able to sit with their children um, and walk yeah. through emotions with them, walk through life with them just as you're saying that, I'm just thinking about the very varied experience that, you know, all of us have in our lives and how safe we feel or do not feel to be able to really Mm -hmm. sit with those feelings of grief. And during this pandemic, I think as you're naming, a lot of us have really been feeling big feelings. And I think about our essential workers, you know, essential, mm-hmm. you know, that term gets thrown around, but we know we're talking mm-hmm. about the healthcare workers, mm-hmm. teachers, bus drivers who haven't had as much space and time to really be able to sit with the grief of right now, um versus those of us who also do essential work, you know, but who right. we have more luxury and time to be able to sit and walk through our feelings. And so I love it that you really honed in on this experience of emotion that Mary is having Um, on some of the previous episodes we've talked about that real struggle right now during the pandemic, not to desensitize the grieving, you know, as more and more Mm -hmm. people die, it's just kind of become almost an ordinary part of life. And I think Mm. you you calling us to really pause on that experience of Mary weeping is reminding, is reminding me that it's okay to sit in that grief, to be sad about just one loss is enough to stop mm-hmm. and to weep and to have a moment yeah. about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I love, thank you too for saying that this is like some people have space to process this and some people don't. And I do really think that this whole, I mean, the all of the multiple pandemics happening right now, right? Of COVID-19, of racism, of some of the things that are being uncovered in our society about um, how this system really isn't working for everyone. And this is not a life as life abundant a country as we would like to think it is, right? Um, and Yeah, this is a a different trauma, obviously, in a different time, but I once heard a Holocaust scholar say that people come through trauma with two responses, one of two responses. You can either say that was horrible and I never want it to happen to me again or want it to happen to any again. I just think that is how we ought to come out of this trauma. Um, is to say, I don't want this to happen to anybody. Um, I want everybody to be able to feel their full weight of grief about it. I want everybody to be able to live a safe and healthy and full life. And I think it's becoming clear in the spaces in our society that we're able to do that in the spaces that we're not. And it's, it's. Um, I don't know, my hope is that it's the kind of grief and big feelings that pr- can propel those of us who maybe do have space for grieving, um, or can, you know, make that space that can propel us into that. How can we make space for everyone kind of space in your role as a
0: pastor, how, you know, you've come in really in the middle of things, right. In the middle of this pandemic moment, how are you walking with them through the grief?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, I just started this call uh, mid December of 2020. Um, So Christmas was just came kind of right away. I, oh gosh, speaking of Christmas, I, I just felt the weight of um, the weight of being separated at at those kinds of holidays, I think is really, really poignant in the church, um, because that touch point of being in the sanctuary and lighting your candles and singing Silent Night, I mean, that is just such a ritual for everyone. So definitely felt the weight of that. Um, And Christ Church Lutheran, this church that I'm now senior pastor of, um, is about, I would say, 10 blocks from, we're in Minneapolis, and it's about 10 blocks from where George Floyd was murdered this past summer. Um, And so to see the the way I've kind of engaged with a congregation is to have one-on-one conversations with people and get to know them that way. So to hear people reflect on that and to hear this mostly white congregations uh, talk, talk really, really profoundly about um, all of their individual and collective reckonings uh, with racial justice and with racism, especially in this city and like in this very neighborhood and how that plays out, how it plays out in their own lives. Um, that, that has been really powerful for me to hear and um, I don't even think I have a nice bow to tie up that sentence with other than to say like, wow, that work feels, um, sorry, you hear my dog barking in the background, <laughs> that work feels heavy, it feels important, um, and it feels like what we were just talking about, like, that clearly there are deep, deep disparities um, and and underlying racism violence all of this being uncovered and I my hope and prayer going forward this is not going to be a short journey right it's not going to be something we check off a checklist it's not going to be something we achieve at it's going to be um something that every every church community is reckoning with or I hope every church community is reckoning with it so I'm grateful um to get to be walking that journey with this community now and I don't know what it's going to look like um but it feels, like, it feels like the most important thing to be talking about and doing and examining right now. The, there's another part to that sentence, right? So Jesus says,
0: woman, why are you weeping? And, and like you said, I think, and it's such a big problem for me. Maybe it's my feminism. <laughs> but there are just certain moments whenever Jesus talks to women in scripture, mm-hmm. where I kind of feel a certain sharpness to it. <laughs>
1: yep, yep, yep. Yes. It's
0: like Jesus has a bit of an attitude about what that woman, and maybe it's always the the woman
1: that yes I <laughs> <laughs> totally agree totally
0: so maybe that's why it feels so much like an accusation The woman
1: <laughs> yes yes
0: but the other part of the statement is for whom are you looking
1: right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's
0: this there's this bit of kind of hope and possibility there in the second part of the yeah. question so first of all Jesus acknowledging her feelings um we don't know if we love the the phrasing but jesus right. does acknowledge her feelings but from there jesus leads into and so oh. what comes next oh, what do yeah. we do about this experience of loss and what are your thoughts about that what like i understand what you're saying and i agree with you we we have to sit in this moment of grief and yet even in this moment of grief we have to make something of it and so I'm thinking about even your physical location that you told me and you're in our audience that you're in, which is in Minneapolis, which has been this site of such just racial trauma this past year. So how do you make something of that?
1: Yeah, that is that is a really good question because we can't, uh, you know, you can't sit in in Good Friday forever, right? You have to eventually get to Easter Sunday, but it can really feel like, we're, I mean, I would say Minneapolis right now still feels like we're sitting in Good Friday. And I, you know, back, I think everything is relating to trauma right now, but kind of back to the trauma conversation. Um, I read a book in seminary, I believe by a professor named Shelly Rambo. Um, and she talked about trauma and she talked about Holy Saturday as a perfect analogy for trauma, because this is the day that Jesus goes to hell. Um, and this is the day that Jesus experiences the depths of the depths. Um, and her, if I'm remembering correctly, it's been quite a few years since I read it, but I, I remember interpreting her thesis as the, the message of Holy Saturday is solidarity, is that God is with us. And you don't, and, and the message of Holy Saturday is that you don't have to push to get to Easter Sunday if you're not ready and that God will walk with you the entire, the entire way. Um, so that's one thing that kind of gives me comfort is even though it still feels like Good Friday and Holy Saturday in terms of especially, like I said, in Minneapolis with our reckoning with, with um, this particular place and time and racism and how it shows up here, um, that, that there's that promise too. Um, and I will say the promise of knowing that Easter Sunday is coming still does keep me grounded too that that we do have a god that defies death and that takes all of the death dealing forces in the world including racism and white supremacy uh, on these intense obvious levels and on all the levels that exist you know in all of our bodies um, and relationships and that god takes those death dealing forces and does transform them um, I mean, I, I think that resurrection promise is honestly what I've been clinging to <laughs> so tightly these last uh, many, many months, too many months um, with all these pandemics. So, so this, yeah, this resurrection story, I mean, the, this story, right, that we read is situated in the middle of this larger story, um, and it's this highly intimate personal moment of Mary being seen and known and getting to feel her feelings and then being named. And it happens within the like core central story of Christianity, which is that God doesn't let death be the final word um, ever. And I have to cling to that right now.
0: Miriam, I'm just going to be honest with you. As a person who's from the East Coast, I think we believe that we have invented all of everything, right? (laughs) I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm serving obviously a church in New England, which has a very old and rich history, obviously a history that's very much rooted in colonial violence, but, Mm -hmm. you know, a very long and rich history, you know, for the United States. And, you know, I grew up mostly in Virginia and the Carolinas. And I think, on the East Coast and especially for people who are from the Southeast, we think of racism as an issue that, you know, because of what we've learned about Jim Crow and segregation, as an issue that you face in the Southeast and, you know, perhaps you'll face it in other places but possibly not. And I think what happened, you know, in Minneapolis in June of 2020, was a stark wake-up call for a lot of people that racism is it doesn't it doesn't have borders and boundaries as soon as you leave the carolinas or georgia or alabama you know racism doesn't cease just because you've crossed over borders into a new state um so you you've said that uh, minneapolis is still kind of in this good friday moment so can you talk more about that? What has the experience been for you as a person who I believe you're from? Are you from Minnesota? And as a person who's pastoring and leader and leading and raising your children there, um what has been the you know, has there been a reckoning like what what's happening?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yes, I am in the interesting position of having grown up in the Midwest, but then, um, we moved to Atlanta actually when I was nine. So from when I was like third grade ish to, um, graduating from high school, I lived in Atlanta and then I came back to Minnesota for college. So I totally agree with you and, um, had that experience myself when I came back to Minnesota for college. So many people would say, um, Oh, you're from the South. That's where people are racist, but we're not racist here. And I would get so angry when people would say that, because I was like, you just don't think you're racist because you live in a monolithic world. You know, like, of course you don't think you're racist. You haven't actually had to encounter people who are different than you. And, um, when you do, you don't talk about it. (laughs) And when there is racism, racism, you don't talk about it. Um, and this, so I, I read this, uh, book a couple of years ago it's an anthology written by by Minnesota authors called I hope I'm getting this right I think it's a good time for the truth um, and it's a it's an anthology of Minnesota authors talking about racism in Minnesota and the specific brand of racism here and I think it's so um, so important to talk I mean just you know different areas of the country or different cultures for sure um and i think the specific way that racism plays out in this state and in this city is this um i don't know if you've heard it, we use the term here minnesota nice and what it means is that you're nice to someone's face and then you stab them behind the back you know uh and that is what how racism shows up here right like People will be super, super kind to you in the grocery store, but they will never actually develop a real relationship with you. And you can never know kind of where you stand on, on what footing you stand. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've heard this from transplants to the Twin Cities, but I've really, really heard it from people of color in the Twin Cities. That's like, I can't, I don't, I have no idea who I can trust because people are so quote unquote nice but they never want to talk about hard things and they never want to really delve into their own stuff on that. So I think um, that's a particular nature of our reckoning right now is to say, what does this actually look like? And for me personally, that's like undoing it on a bodily level. Like it's noticing where my conflict avoidance shows up. It's noticing where I want to be nice, but I need to be real. Um, And I think that, this is, um, I'm reading Resmaa Manikam's my, my Grandmother's Hands right now. And I just think that somatic body level work is uh, where I need to, where I need to examine those things. And I think different things work for different people in, in making that transformation. But I think that's, again, where I trust this promise of a resurrection, new life transformation. Um, I trust that, that these things can be transformed in all of us.
0: Definitely. And, and as I'm thinking back to what we were just talking about, about the sharpness of the way Jesus responds to Mary, perhaps there's something really that we all can learn from that, mm-hmm. from the sharpness of just being able to ask the question that's on our mind. If we want to know something about a person of a different culture, I think we, to your point, I think when people are different from us, a lot of us, especially those of us who have been kind of raised in more liberal frameworks, Mm -hmm. have been taught you know, maybe don't say anything to the person or, and and it, and it divides us more than it brings us together. We don't actually know anything about each other. You know, I see someone crying. I don't actually know why, because it'll be impolite to walk up to them mm. and say, what are you so upset about? Um, and right. Jesus actually calls us to maybe walk up to strangers and say, what's happening? Yeah. What's going on? What's on your mind? What are the issues that you're confronting? And how right. can we move forward together? Um, So maybe there's something that we learn (laughs) from this encounter in the garden.
1: Yes. Yes. And, and that we're so afraid of um, looking dumb or being overly vulnerable or revealing that we don't actually know what we're talking about. Um, So, so that direct encounter never happens. I think there's a huge, you know, in white liberal circles, I think there's a huge attachment to like being some of the good white people who know what we're talking about and who, um, don't make mistakes. And I just like have to confront that fear in myself of making a mistake and looking like an idiot day after day, because I'm definitely going to, (laughs) and, um, it's hard and it's horrible and it feels awful, but it also racism feels awful. So like the direct confrontation is a necessary thing. I think, for myself to pull pull myself into, even even if I have to do it, kind of kicking and screaming.
0: Yeah, and I think that process of asking questions makes all of us better. I'm, you know, the conversations I have, for example, with my indigenous friends who have yeah. such different political concerns even than I do as a black person. And it's important for me to know that and understand that. And I'm not gonna know unless I ask directly. Yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna know from assuming there's some level of connection, I think, that mm-hmm. this passage is inviting us to have with each other.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And truth-telling. Yeah, definitely. So
0: I want to start to wrap up this conversation. I think there's so much more that we that we could say.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just such
0: a deep passage. Uh, and I love the direction that you've taken us in because you're exactly right. Even as we're beginning to celebrate the resurrection and moving into new life, we also have to confront the reality of the grief that we all are experiencing we have to acknowledge this feeling that even in moments of joy you know i think about you telling us that you arrived at christ church right during the advent season and usually that's a that's an experience of such joy to arrive um during the christmas season and yet this past year there was something really sorrowful about it. Even as we were celebrating joy and hope and peace and love, mm-hmm. there was this feeling of but something isn't right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll say just as a, by way of conclusion, the other line, the final line comes of this passage that Mary says, I have seen the Lord feels like our, decal- our our declaration in the midst of this grief. Um, I was reading the paper the other day and there were headlines that were awful. I mean, just horrible. And then there were headlines um, about environmental, on a state level, like environmental litigation that had turned out in favor of the environment, you know? And there were stories about, I mean, for me, I'll say personally, <laughs> with my own politics, the the Senate runoffs in Georgia were a huge, huge way of saying, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the first millennial and the 11th Black person get elected to the Senate. And that's wild that that's true, especially of Reverend Warnock. But That's, that's like, I've seen the Lord, you know, that the world is changing. So I don't need to wrap it all up in a bow. I think sitting up in our grief sitting in our grief is really important. But I I have seen some places like this declaration of I have seen the Lord feels really possible and really necessary to say um, in these times too.
0: Yeah. And that leads me into the last question I have for you, which is during these times where we've talked about how much grief there is, how and where are you experiencing the steadfast love of God?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that feels, um, that question feels so macro and so micro at the same time, because even though COVID-19 is raging, racism remains the greatest confusing, most confusing problem. Um, and there's layers and layers of, of so much going on on this macro level. My life is lived on this micro level because I have an eight month, a nine month old and a almost three year old. And, um, you know, the baby needs his diapers changed. And uh, as, as mentioned before, the toddler has big feelings that need attending to like right now. Uh, So much of, of babies and toddlers lives is like, I have this immediate need that needs to be attended to in this very moment. And I have to say those things have given me such great joy uh, and hope and um, needing to attend to and kind of create a space for their innocence has reminded me that that's okay. Um, That it's okay to have those spaces. And um, that, that cultivating joy is not, it's okay and it's necessary to cultivate joy in these times as well. We will never ever get through it if we don't have uh, joy in the midst of it all. And then, like I said, there are those bigger macro joys, too, of learning that, that there are people and communities really examining the ways that they have contributed to racism. And like I said, for me, particularly in this neighborhood and, country, and city, but then also um, in our country. So I'm, I'm seeing those joys on both micro and macro levels, but I'm really personally getting to enjoy the, the micro ones.
0: Well, Miriam, this has been such a fantastic conversation. I'll remind everyone that Miriam Samuelson-Roberts is the senior pastor at Christ Church Lutheran, which is in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, we were so glad to have you as a guest today. Miriam, thank you so much for joining
1: us. Thank you so much. It's been such a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank
0: you for listening to this episode of Cloud and Fire. This concludes our first season, which has been all about how and where we experience God's steadfast love. If you've enjoyed this season, I invite you to share it with someone who you love as they continue to journey through the wilderness together. Cloud and Fire is a production of First Baptist Church in Beverly. Our theme music is by the talented Rebecca Silva. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Cloud and Fire Pod. Until we see you again for season two, be well and get home safely.